Welcome to Day 2 Cloud. Today, we are talking to Mike Fraser. He is the VP of DevSecOps over at Sophos, and he's a former guest of Day 2 Cloud way back in the halcyon days of 2019. Few things have changed since then. Some of them positive. You know, his company got acquired. Some of them kind of negative, you know, that whole pandemic thing. But today we're talking about DevSecOps and how it's more than just a marketing term. Uh, What stuck out to you, Ethan? Well, uh, we got into the whole infrastructure as code, IT as code, again, one of our favorite <laughs> topics here on Day 2 Cloud, Ned. And, but, but one of the points that came out that was exciting to me is how we're qualifying what IT as code, infrastructure as code means for ops folks. And it doesn't mean you have to become a developer in the full-blown, I'm a, I sit and I write code all day sense. And we're starting to put some specifics around that where we're saying what that really means. And it's come up on a few podcasts recently, and it came up again today, what it really means to be uh, someone who knows something about code as an ops person. Right. And to me, that was probably the most interesting part of the conversation. So enjoy this episode with Mike Fraser, the VP of DevSecOps at Sophos. Well, Mike, welcome to Day 2 Cloud. I'm excited to have you on the show again, because this is actually the second time you've been on the show. You were on way back in October 2019. We were so young and innocent then. (laughs) (laughs) At the time, you were working on getting your company uh, refactor off the ground. How's that going? It's going great. Yeah, I don't even remember the world before uh, the pandemic started. So (laughs) thanks for the reminder, Ned. Yeah, it's been going great. Uh, We were actually acquired last year in August by Sofo. So uh, spent a few years building up the product, getting customers, uh, and we're able to uh, exit uh, before all of the crazy financial things happening in this world. So it was really good timing. Not that we had any crystal ball, but it was good for us for sure. <laughs> That's awesome. And so now that you're part of the larger portfolio of Sophos products, how does what you were doing with Refactor fit into what? exists at Sophos and what's your position now that you're in this larger organization? So I I was the co-founder and CEO of Refactor. And then after acquisition, I became VP of DevSecOps to push the DevSecOps strategy with what Refactor is, which is a DevSecOps automation platform, AKA a DevSecOps factory, which is now (laughs) called Sophos factory. So now you know why why it's named the way it is. Gotcha. So we went from refactor to factory, but the the core concept remains the same of DevSecOps, correct? Correct. And if you notice, portion of refactor lives on in factory too. So it was... uh, (laughs) You refactored refactor. Exactly. (laughs) Well, DevSecOps is a word that we hear in the community from time to time. Um, And it seems to me like that's actually three different jobs, right? So uh, I want to know what's what's your take on the DevSecOps term? How, how do you feel it applies to what you've done in the past and also the, the solution that you helped develop? That's a great question. And I, uh, I was just talking earlier about this with uh, somebody else around the uh, DevSecOps. A lot of folks think about AppSec redefined or I'm adding security to pure play uh, application development. And my philosophy around that and what was building at Refactor was to build something that could cater to the broader spectrum of technical talent to also include cybersecurity and ops folks, but also have the features and functionality that developers and dev 
uh, people want or engineers want, because if you build something too far at the edge of the spectrum, like to the cybersecurity side or to the developer side, you're going to ostracize a good chunk of users. And so I want to, and that's why I, I push hard. It was almost impossible to pull off to build an actual platform because that's what you have to do in order to cater to the you know different teams. But to your to your question too, I do look at each team having expertise around what they're doing, and so they should be able to build the automation and integrations around what they're doing, and have diff- each of the teams essentially build lego block like automation so everything's modular and then be able to tie those together to build a solution that makes sense for the organization wants instead of to your your point trying to find the rainbow color painted unicorns out there that uh, are very few and far between devsecops engineers that know all three domains um you know it's it's not something easy to pull off although i do like to say i do personify devsecops because i started in cybersecurity in the air force I've had consulting firms where I did a lot of IT ops stuff. And then I also uh, went back to school while I was I was uh, starting up Refactor to get my bachelor's and master's in computer science so that I could understand the full spectrum of what's required to build something like this. So, OK, so DevSecOps almost sounds like it's just a marketing buzzword. It just feels like it's this thing that you got. Of course, you do DevSecOps because we do DevOps and we got to have security, too. So DevSecOps, that's a thing, obviously. But the way you're describing it, since it's spread out over multiple people, there's not that many unicorns in the world that know all the different roles. Does it have more teeth that we should take the term seriously or is it more of a marketing thing? I think it has more teeth if it's coming from somebody technical like myself versus just seeing somebody saying, hey, we do DevSecOps. We have DevSecOps products. It's like, okay, well, great. Like uh, we have an AI product. Okay, great. Right. Like that's like no, nobody, nobody care, cares about being marketed that way. I think to your, to your question or to your point, DevSecOps is really, if we look at DevOps and what it did for infrastructure, agile infrastructures code, bringing that to application delivery processes. Then we think about adding in security and the ops side of it, but being able to, again, be more holistic, then we can truly achieve this. But it's more of a a set of principles that are extending what DevOps was and the methodology and the culture piece and the process piece as important to can, is there technology that can help us enable this? But if you don't have the culture and the processes in place to be able to break down the silos and get the teams involved to collaborate together and build more towards automation. And the other piece of that is the market's pushing us to this. And I may be jumping ahead uh, here, but I, I, I came up with the term IT as code. And the goal with IT as code was to say, we're everything is, is evolving from hardware to software or software defined. And if that's the case, we need to be thinking about what we were doing for application delivery Mm -hmm. and how we were releasing software to to production, taking that same same concepts and principles and applying that to everything now in the IT stack that may no longer be about releasing your own software. It may be about releasing other people's software, you know, third-party software together. So it feels like we're taking the DevOps methodology that you were describing there, applying that to security. So if that's true, then DevSecOps isn't this unique thing off to the side. It is 
part of your DevOps culture just bringing security and making that a first-class citizen in that application deployment process? Kind of. The, the problem with that, though, is that the, the approach, m- most organizations are doing this on their dev team or their DevOps team, but they're not applying that to what they're doing on the cybersecurity teams or the, tr- you know, tr- the ops teams internally supporting different systems internally. So the goal is to broaden that so it includes that as well, which is a conundrum. Because you're right, if it was like pure play app dev, great. We're now, we now have IAC security scanning and we have policy as code and we have like all these things. But it doesn't necessarily have to be about, again, app development and releasing software to production as in your own software you're creating. Now we're expanding that to say, you can now do that for infrastructure as code around use cases like, you know, I want to deploy a virtual firewall uh, and some VMs into the cloud, and I can do that. Maybe I'm going to scan the configuration of that as well. All of a sudden, I have different use cases that are tied mm-hmm. together into a solution that doesn't have anything to do with, you know, traditional application delivery. Yeah, that's that's funny, though. Yes. You, OK, I see where you're going. We could do that. The The challenge then is just you're not centered around an artifact like with app, with an application delivery you always get this artifact that everything's kind of built around and you can see it moving down the pipeline and you're building other components around it and so on you don't have that when it's you're applying things more broadly so i think it's it feels a little more abstract when you talk about it in that uh, construct building out a virtual firewall and, a, and applying policy but doing it in uh an iac style Yeah. So that's where in many ways you have to think about building your automation, your pipelines, like you would be building software, Mm -hmm. but you have to have the user experience that can cater to the, to the broader spectrum of talent to include cybersecurity and ops. So if you think about that, what, what is the approach for most cybersecurity products? There has to be a nice user interface. Um, There needs to be, you know, a, a really good user experience that I can, walk through, but everything's visual, right? It's a very visual approach. And then mm-hmm. on the developer side, everything is code-based. It's, you know, I'm using Git, I'm using particular CI, CD platforms. So in taking the best of both worlds, you have to have the architecture from the DevOps, from what you get from DevOps from a CI, CD perspective where you can build and iterate. But at the same time, you have to also have the user experience from a visual perspective so that cybersecurity and ops folks can be a part of the actual building process, or consuming first and then building. And then also how those map to use cases and how, again, moving. Yeah. So the use cases are super critical yep. on that because you can't expect non-developers to all of a sudden become developers. You have to give them some baseline to start with. So the content creation is key. Unlike traditional CICD where you're like, hey, here's here's our product. You can just start building your code in it, right? Your expectation is it's a developer. They're creating code. Whereas on the other end of the spectrum, your expectation is they're going to probably consume the code. They're not going to create the code from scratch. And then Mm -hmm. over time, the goal would be that they could start upscaling to be able to also be a part of that, but they may never get to the, you know, the other end of the spectrum on the developer side where they're building stuff from scratch. Yeah. when you think about user friendliness and the fact that, like you mentioned, like a lot of security tools do have a nice, rich user experience in terms of a UI, or if you're more of a traditional networking type person, you're comfortable at maybe a, a shell. But 
the the software development stuff like Git in particular, Git is not a friendly experience. I've never met anyone who's like, I find Git intuitive and simple to use. <laughs> if you find that person, let me know. <laughs> it's never good by <laughs> It's, 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 it's okay until it's not okay. <laughs> yeah. So something you're, breaks. Yeah. You're trucking along. Yeah. You're like, yeah, I'm doing great. I'm, I'm making a branch and then I'm merging in the branch. And then you need to now cherry pick commits from another branch and skip a few and, uh Oh, I have to rebase. But what does that mean? It's like, okay, my head just exploded. <laughs> I don't understand. I don't understand what I'm doing. And I'm just me like, imagine this on a team. So I think that gets to your point of we need an experience that caters to the security team as well, something they can actually, you know, dig into and use as opposed to saying, all right, I need you to become a software developer tomorrow. It, 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 exactly. And that was actually one of the key uh, choices that I made when building refact the refactor platform was that I didn't want to have a dependency on Git out of the gate. So you could just start bringing into your point, if you're like a network administrator that has some scripts you have some Ansible playbooks, whatever it may be, you can bring your content in, build your pipelines, but you don't have to pull necessarily from Git. You could just copy, paste in line, start setting up. But in order to, to ensure that you're following better practices around DevOps and DevSecOps, you do need to eventually get that into a more Git type workflow. And so we did support Git out of the gate, but it was in the pipeline, a choice of the user not on um, uh, that you absolutely have to create your CI file, drop it into a Git repo and start. It was like, no, I know cybersecurity folks don't want to do that out of the gate. They want something easier that walks them to then being able to start using things like Git. And then the other piece was the interoperability between existing CI CD systems. So if it's a larger organization that has an existing investment where they want to tie that in to say a GitLab or a GitHub or whatever CI CD, making that as easy as possible too. So there's interconnectivity between the net new stuff that the cybersecurity folks may create or ops folks, but also the ability to tie it into the existing workflows if they're already in place. Well, you're also saying cybersecurity broadly here, but in some of the larger shops that I've worked with, the cybersecurity has been broken out where the people that I would call the policymakers are kind of off to the side doing their thing. And then you've got people that are more on the implementation side, which might've been me, for example, pushing a firewall policy dictated by this other group. They didn't care how I pushed the policy. They just told me what the policy would be. So are those more the policy side of folks involved in this too, Mike? Yeah, they definitely could be in, engaged in this as well. Uh, again, everything, if it's broken into like what each team's expertise is and they're building, contributing towards what that is. And the goal is that if you can have one unified place to create and store and share content from, then you can incorporate, say, the policy team into it. And if you think about that from a policy standpoint or say configuration, you may also have the, the DevOps team or the cloud team building the infrastructure that I may be deploying those firewalls using the same examples we did earlier, but also then saying, I can now also include the policy in here, or maybe I want it completely decoupled because everything I have is deployed as hardware. And I just want to run it against the hardware uh, versions of the firewall instead of virtual. So it adds the flexibility to have the different teams in where they can build and contribute and share. And it makes everything repeatable too, which goes back to you know, what DevOps and CICD is all about, which is you want that repeatability and that ability to iterate as you're adding in 
maybe new policies or you're incorporating new tools where you want to build automation around that type, that type of approach. Mm-hmm. Okay, you said tools. Is that really what we're talking about here? For folks to take on this IT as code approach that you're advocating, is it really about learning tooling or is it we need to eventually evolve to learning code and we got to be, uh, from an ops perspective, software developers of some kind? I think this is the debate between DSLs and general purpose programming languages. <laughs> much. Um, yeah, so uh, at some point you're gonna have to learn code. So I, I also like to say, no matter how easy you make this approach to say DevSecOps automation, you're gonna have to learn some sort of computer science fundamental skills. Now, again, you may not be a full on software engineer, but you do need to know how things work, data structure, you know, things that are your expectations of how this is going to work in a, a broader, more sophisticated automation that you're building. So you can start small, learn some initial concepts, but you do need to learn over time how to also interface with other teams, how you can get data in and out of you know, the automation that you're creating. So it's that's the key longer term is that you do have to learn some skills in order to actually some computer science fundamental skills in order to actually contribute and build things. But, but you, working with structured data and being able to manipulate it and put it through its paces, do, do something useful with it is a very different conversation from saying you need to learn a whole lot of complex uh, algorithms, let's say, to be, be effective at this. You may need to learn something simple, looping structures and so on. But the key thing, then, thing is several points you made there tied all back to understanding structured data and being able to work with it. Yeah, structured data, same, same thing to looping, how variables work, like yeah. all these core concepts. But these aren't just specific to DevSecOps. This is also specific to like, I want to get into the cloud. Okay, well, if you're going to learn any of these tools, say CloudFormation templating or or Terraform or whatever, you have to understand these concepts. So even if I have an abstraction layer on top of these tools to make it easier to consume the tools and the content, back to your question about how to learn how to code, there is a certain level of upskilling that you do need to know if you do want to build things within the tools. And then if you're an app, you're a layer above that abstracted, you may need to know how the actual, say, a pipeline works. You may not need to know the inner workings of what's in the pipeline, but I need to know what does this pipeline do? What are my inputs and outputs? And how does this work into the broader solution that I'm trying to create? But that's more like, you know, I have a, a, a function, right, of, of that, I, I'm, I, that I've created, um, even if it's easier to understand and it's not pure software uh, development, it is a sort of coding. So it's a long way, long-winded answer to say, yes, there is a little bit of coding that you need to be able to pick up to be able to pick up these concepts, but it may just be within the constraints of say a DSL and a tool, as opposed to having to know like, you know, two, three, four, five different programming languages. Most of us have at some point done some level of scripting whether it's Bash, PowerShell, Perl, whatever your your poison was at the time. So some of these concepts will be somewhat familiar. And like, you know, you said you went and got your CS degree. And I also at some point got a CS degree, but that I don't use a lot of what I learned in my CS degree on a regular basis. Like, I can't remember the last time I had to use big O notation or figure out a bubble sort. Like that's <laughs> not really part of my day to day. But yeah, just having that general experience of, 
okay, yeah, I know how to build a loop. I know how to create a variable and maybe do some data validation of the input that's coming in. Just basic principles that are useful outside of writing a custom application, but just doing, you know, some basic scripting. So I think that's, it's nice to have those skills. And it, I think it's going to become required at a certain point um, <laughs> to continue on in technology. It's kind of, it's interesting that if you look back in the long like hallway of technology back to old computer days when there was no developer and then an ops person and then a security person, there was like one person and they would punch their own cards. They'd write their own software. They would literally operate the machine that, you know, ran the punch cards and ran their program. And so there was no separation. I don't think we'll ever go back to that, but I think the need to have some of those skills is now trickling back into the ops side. Yeah, that's funny you bring up punch cards. My, my grandma actually we used to work on an IBM uh, computer with punch cards, but there was actually two people. It was her and then the QA person that would take the punch cards, run them through and come back with all the markings on them of what she needed to do to, to, to correct any of the bugs she had. <laughs> wow, literal quality assurance. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, and waiting days of time to get it back too, yeah. <laughs> But so far, we've been talking in generalities and abstractions when it comes to DevSecOps. Uh, do you have an example? And I, I kind of know you do. So that's why I'm asking the question. Do you have an example of this actually being implemented in practice in the real world? And, and can you like just kind of explain that example? And we can dig deeper into it. I do. I have many examples, but I will keep it uh, controlled to uh, a single one right now. So um about two years ago, we engaged with, we were able to land a contract with the uh, Air Force's Platform One, and then we ended up expanding to uh, Space Force, uh, Space Camp, which is basically the Air Force and Space Force's uh, DevSecOps initiative. And it was built around Kubernetes and all the security requirements around that. And they have a project called Big Bang, which is basically a repo of all of the content and everything in it. And so we ended up taking that and building out pipelines around that in Refactor at the time to make it easier to consume and help a broader set of warfighters be able to actually be to actually stand this up. Because one of the problems was it could take days or even weeks of time for a traditional warfighter. And I was one of, you know, I, I was a warfighter at one point in time. So I know um, what, how, how difficult it is to try to make the leap from what you're doing in the government, which is usually lagging behind, especially on the IT and cybersecurity side, because they have to get everything tested and make sure it all works. And they're not introducing, you know, very bleeding edge things that could have bugs or other issues that could just cause, you know, issues. Um, but there has been a move for more innovation so that they can actually do things that are in alignment with the commercial side or civilian side uh, of the world. So that way that they're not lagging behind and have the ability to bring, and I wouldn't say Kubernetes is new, a new concept, but for the, the government and for even a lot of enterprise still uh, in a lot of organizations, it's still a newer concept. So being able to even have that in place and try to make it easier for consumption and then also the different pieces and parts around, say, security tooling to make it easier to have security teams engaged as well so that there are different teams that are contributing and making it easier for consumption for very difficult uh, overall projects. So if you think about Kubernetes with uh, uh, Istio and 
uh, uh, HashiCorp Vault and, you know, just fill in 10 other tools. It's like, oh, okay, wow. I just, (laughs) I have a very complicated uh, offering that I need to figure out how to to stand up and maintain. Yeah, yeah. So it sounds like you were applying a bunch of different principles there to get this infrastructure stood up. What can we sort of pick them out a little bit in terms of what was the actual workflow that you were trying to automate and how did the different components of dev and sec and ops slot into that workflow? That's a great question. So we had so we we set it up where the infrastructure was one set or was a set of pipelines. So that was like the baseline Kubernetes deployment, the supporting AWS services, what was required there. Then on the security side, there were, and they were doing more of a GitOps workflow. So we did some interesting things around being able to update configuration files in order to then incorporate additional containers that had security tools in there. But those were separated to a separate set of pipelines so that security folks could actually use those and stand them up as well. So that way you had you could have different teams maintaining different parts of the project, but being able to uh, uh, incorporate them together where it made sense and how you wanted the end result to be. And then longer term, it was also, it's also about adding in additional more like it operations things to incorporate like ticketing systems or chat ops or other things that the, the it ops or the ops team would then be able to, to maintain themselves too. So that way you had clear lines of demarcation between who is supporting different tools and essentially the, the pipelines um, for, for their respective products that they're supporting, and then combining those together as a solution so that they, you could actually deploy it from content created from each of the teams. That seems to be the most difficult part because you just, just described like eight different projects all spinning at the same time. And I'm imagining someone like the guy who has the spinning plates and he's just like trying to keep them all up in the air at the same time. So like, how do you cohesively turn that into a a solution that one person can look at and go, okay, these are the pieces, but this is how they fit together. And I've got a dashboard or some sort of management uh, of this more sophisticated solution that's built from all these parts. Ned, it's easy. It's just APIs and glue code. What could go wrong? Yeah, yeah, I know, right? (laughs) (laughs) It'll be fine. It'll never break. It's always, it's always good. Yeah. And you introduce like, one one new version of a CLI tool that you're using in there and all of a sudden the thing's on fire. So yeah, exactly. Yeah, so you, you have to be very deliberate in how you're building content and also the patterns of which, of how you're building that content. So there is something to be said about the processes that you have in place and the training that you get folks onto. And it's not just about say, a platform that that can enable the collaboration. It's also about the how you create the content that your tools are using, how those get packaged up, and also the expectations of how um, you're going to add net new or add or subtract any sort of uh, pieces of parts of that. So there has to be some sort of change control mechanism as well to make sure that you know you're not just pulling out pieces and adding pieces in. You're like, oh, this should still work, right? Like. There's some level of uh, understanding around that. But if it's built in a way that you can do that, at least you're going to put in some guardrails in place to ensure that if I swap one thing out for something else, 
I go through a testing process, make sure that it works, and then I can publish that out and have another version of the solution available, um, but also being able to have multiple versions of solutions available. So it's not like you just have one big solution to rule them all and you can't touch it <laughs> unless you get, you know, 20 people engaged in order to, you know, raise their hand and say, yeah, it's okay. Or no, let's not do this. <laughs> right. It reminds me a lot of when you have microservices built up and each microservice has to have a consistent API that the other microservices are talking to. So whatever, however it's implemented on the background, if you want to go, you know, migrate off of Go and start using Rust, or if you want to change what it's running on VMs today and you want to run it on containers tomorrow, that's fine. As long as the front end doesn't change for that particular component and everything else can still interact the way that it expects to. So I look at that, especially in Sophos Factory, as like a one-to-many approach where if I introduce new automation, I can still call it all through the same API. So if I change the language I'm using and I'm updating that into another pipeline and then tying into the ability to use that pipeline versus another pipeline, but I'm interfacing the exact same way to execute the, the automation from. And so that makes it a much better experience from a standpoint of adding net new you know, automation or building blocks, whatever you want to call it, to be able to use those. So that way it's not to your point, like if I just make all these changes, well, what if I go run this thing again? Um, I need to be thinking about how I can have instances of things that I can trigger from one API set. So that does make it much easier from a from being able to do that if you have a platform that enables that. But you have to have the platform to enable that in order to because if not, then yeah, you're 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 then dependent on on humans to hopefully follow your, you know, your, your SOPs properly, right? <laughs> yeah. Everybody reads the SOPs yeah. and them to the letter. I mean, in the air force, you got a pretty good chance of that actually happening. I would say in any <laughs> normal we, organization, we, we, we call them TOs, technical orders. And if you don't follow them, the consequences are much more dire than uh, in the civilian world. <laughs> Imagine <laughs> Now, Mike, you you were acquired, your company, Refactor, was acquired by Sophos. And I think you mentioned along the way that you were bringing DevSecOps and IT as code ideas into Sophos, into the company. Can you can you talk about that? I can. Uh, yeah, so it's it's been interesting. Uh, so it's, it's Sophos. Sophos was looking for an automation product. So we fit the bill to be able to provide automation capabilities around what's called SOARS, security orchestration automation and response. But the reality is we built a DevSecOps automation platform that enabled basically the far, that's the far right of the DevSecOps stages, right? The response after you've created and you've configured and you know you have everything in place, right? So at Sophos, I've been working backwards from that because the other thing with a lot of cybersecurity companies is that, uh, especially once I've been around a while, is that a lot of the products are built about around the reactive side, not the proactive side. And so DevSecOps enables the proactive side too. And so getting through the understanding of how this could actually create the thing that then you can respond to um, has been interesting in general in the industry as I was building Refactor, but also now being on at, at Sophos. And it's actually overall been, been great and very well received. But it is a very new concept to the industry in general, especially cybersecurity. So you can imagine 
you know, working through how that can also be used internally. But the nice thing is we like to do a lot of dog fooding. So we mm -hmm. use our own products internally um, to test them out and get adoption across the organization. And this product has been well received across dev sec and ops team. So exactly <laughs> what I was trying to achieve with the product. <laughs> so how did you convince the internal groups that you, that seem to all be happy? How did you convince them to get on board? That's a great, so a lot of evangelizing, um, but really just showing, saying, here is the art of the possible, giving them the things that they could understand from some, you know, time consuming manual tasks that they're doing starting there and then expanding from there. It's also a lot easier to start out with teams that may not have much or no automation in place. So they know that like, I really want to figure out how we can improve, you know, to do more with the existing talent that we have on our team. There's no way we can continue to scale out without doing that. And then other teams where they go, this is a much better product than another product that I'm using, but they were another team under their teams started using it for some other use case and they just call wind of, Oh, this is available. They start using it and go, wow, this is like the easiest thing that I've ever tried to use to automate. So why are we using it? You know, instead of this other product, right? So it's been a lot of evangelizing, but it's also been kind of where teams sit at their levels of automation they have in place, making sure that they don't feel like it's just, they're going to spend a ton of time having to uh, displace other products. And my value prop always has been trying to build this. Like, I don't want you to have to like rip out something and replace it with this. I want you to augment it because, you know, everybody has issues with how much talent that they have in place. And they, they're just trying to get more out of, you know, as much as they can out of their current talent. And also trying to change from one product to another is all, you know, in today's you know day and age is a very difficult proposition, depending on how much uh, you, you, how long you've been using and how much you've been building out of it as well. Yeah, I, I've always heard that the biggest challenge for any product is to be better than the alternative of changing nothing. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. Um, I do think the talent shortage is helping us there, though, especially in, in the developer, DevOps world, and cybersecurity. And this fits right there in the sweet spot in both sides. So from a standpoint of, you know, both of those domains, everybody's like, yeah, we, we, we have to figure out automation in some way. Uh, to help us hmm. with this problem. Yeah, I mean, to a certain degree, the the teams that have less automation in place, this this makes it easier for them because they're transitioning from nothing. So this is going to be better than nothing, which is where they're at now. But I think you mentioned some of the teams that might already be using another tool. And there's definitely a, an adoption cost for transitioning your processes and your tooling over to this new solution. So was the process of overcoming the objections just, hey, look at this other team and how they're doing? Or did you have another way to overcome that objection of, well, we already have a thing? Yeah, that's a good question. It was, it was, part of it was the frustration of how difficult it was to continue to maintain or build net new stuff in it, even though they've been using it for years. So there was that piece of it. <laughs> then the other piece was, <laughs> how easy is this to tie into my, to this tool and start just building new stuff in Sophos factory. And then I can, you know, then the team can decide how, when, how and when they want to start moving things over or for lack of a better word, refactoring them into Sophos factory. Um, but it gives them 
the power to figure out what makes sense for them, as opposed to saying, oh, you got to take all of this and move it over. And then we got to just pick a day and a time to cut this thing over. And you're right. I mean, there's a huge amount of cost to that. And nobody wants to spend a ton of time on back end stuff just for processes to make their processes better, unless there's some bigger value to them longer term because they have other teams and other counterparts using it or is something going to be more broadly used across the organization. So having things in a standard format and a standard approach and standard technology longer term is going to help the organization to become more efficient and to accelerate the ability to, um, you know, get release things or get net new solutions out or whatever it may be. Gotcha. Okay. So the teams that have adopted the tool set, what does their workflow look like today when they're, you know, working on a new version of an application or something along those lines? So they, so you build content out in the platform and then you can share the content out, out of what we call a solution catalog. The solution catalog is basically pipelines that are version that can be shared. And then other teams can actually see them if they have access to them. Um, and then use them in pipelines they create. So you can actually take another team's pipelines that they've created, include them in the pipelines you're created. So this goes back to what I was saying earlier, like function building. Like I could take somebody's function or building block and use it in the thing that I'm trying to create. And then the other thing is net new products we're trying to bring on board internally. So if we have a particular vendor that we're trying to test out a product in, it's very easy just to whip up some pipelines around that make sure that it works for the team that's going to be supporting that. And then being able to get that and distribute that across, you know, through a solution catalog across the org. So other teams can get access to it. So making the accessibility and the consumption of it super easy um, and, and net new products in the org are the, one of the easiest ways to start. So you're not having to like, again, refactor anything. You're starting fresh <laughs> uh, from, from uh, the ground floor with that content. Right. I think one important thing that you pointed out there was the idea of a solution catalog or, or you know, you can think of that as a library or a registry of pre-created content. Now, is that is that kept up to date? And then if I publish a new version into the solution catalog, can other people grab that right away or automatically upgrade to that newer version of the pipeline or or the pipeline step that I'm using in my config? So that was something people were frustrated about because of the fact that we didn't have that functionality. So if you had a particular version pinned, you could publish a new version, but if you ran the pipelines with the pin version, they would still run with that version. You wouldn't get the new version. We did release after a lot of feedback and a lot of work, a latest capability. So you could actually pull <laughs> exactly to your scenario from the latest, but still have the opportunity to pin versions if you want to, depending on what exactly it is. So you have the flexibility to do both. But yeah, you can publish out a new version and pick that up. And the team that's creating the pipelines and publishing out can maintain them from their, uh, from their org and their solution catalog, the solution catalog. And then you basically use instances of it in the pipelines that you're creating. So that way you can get the content from the other team, but use it in yours. And so you're using the instance from that solution catalogs. And that's where it really enables for lack of a better word, the democratization of automation content, the ability to share basically in a, in a, in a very easy to consume way. So maybe it's not quite democracy because everybody doesn't get a vote. <laughs> they vote with their poll requests. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. Well, a common pattern that we've seen coming up in a lot of organizations is like a platform team that sort of develops 
this solution catalog in some form or another. And this sounds like a really good snap into that, where if you have a platform team or a security team that's responsible for building the security testing component of the pipeline, they can just keep that up to date. And then everybody else can take advantage of what that team has already put together. Yeah, exactly. I, I, so we actually have a content team because we realize that it's very critical to create the content that we need other folks to be able to consume. But I also look at it as a shared collaborative experience where this needs to expand out from just a single team doing this where other teams can uh, build and create and contribute. And it really depends on the type of skill set that you have uh, of you know, the engineers that you have on your team. And I've seen different teams where they're hiring folks that have automation skills so they can just start building stuff out of the gate and others that need more help because they may not have that particular skill set. So kind of had to walk them further down the path and help them a little bit more, but it's fine because again, the, the byproduct of that is each team then can take responsibility and each team has the expertise of what they're doing, right? So they should longer term take responsibility for the tools and the technology they should be supporting in the organization versus the platform team being like a bunch of DevSecOps engineers that could do anything, right? <laughs> the, ma- the magic unicorns. That we exactly. Exactly. <laughs> yeah, I guess that is a critical part of any uh, DevOps style uh, workflow is to have that feedback loop where your content team publishes these, but then the teams that are using it have the opportunity to provide feedback or suggest changes that would improve their experience and potentially improve the experience of other teams that are using that same content catalog. Exactly. Or even clone them into their own, make changes to them and support it maybe because they have a different approach to how they want that content to be consumed. But again, it could, then it, it enables different teams to be able to support exactly what they want to support without causing issues from the content team having to support everybody across the org. Cause that's, you know, you have a lot of different requests on a lot of different types of use cases across the org, and they can be very different. And really, at the end of the day, the teams that, you know, if it's a internal cybersecurity team, they're going to know, like an AppSec team on that cybersecurity team, they're going to know the best about the AppSec tools versus, say, a, a cloud infrastructure team is going to know best about, you know, uh, you know, uh, uh, cloud native templates or Terraform or that type of stuff. Mm-hmm. Right, right. And maybe you can push some of those changes upstream. Maybe they don't make sense for the whole org. So you keep some of those changes local. Like it just depends on your implementation. Now, one final question to sort of round out the episode is that uh, pipelines are awesome, man, you know, and being able to commit stuff to source control and just have the automation kick off. Uh, But sometimes that automation takes a while, you know, and I've seen pipelines take half an hour, 45 minutes a day, you know. How do you handle emergency incidences in a DevSecOps environment? That's a good question. I, I, I hope we never hit a day of runtime on, on a pipeline. But yes, I, long, long-running pipelines are definitely uh, always an issue to any organization, depending on what you're building in it. So th- this goes back to my earlier comment about patterns and modularity and how you're creating the, the the pipelines and essentially the automation building blocks inside of there and also figuring out like, do I need to have all these things in this pipeline or can I have these different pipelines triggering at different times, maybe the same configuration information or data or whatever, 
but I can then kind of decouple things where I maybe don't need to run this whole end-to-end pipeline because I don't need every last thing in it. But when, from an emergency standpoint, it also comes down to understanding what systems you're touching, what content you've updated, and how quickly you can actually roll back. Because if it is something that causes some sort of massive outage, like what's the contingency plan in place? And that, you know, obviously you need to know that from a technology standpoint, but you also need to know if that happens at like 4 a.m., like who's the person who's going who's gonna to actually answer the phone to make sure that we can do this rollback. So, um, you know, and, I, and the last point I'll make is it's all this stuff is complicated. Like it's, there's no, <laughs> there's no silver bullet. You can make it as easy as possible to build automation. You can make it easy as possible to chain this stuff together and build more sophisticated automation. But at the end of the day, you're creating more complicated, you're using, you're using, tools that are more complicated, you're using them against, uh, you know, different systems, and you have different teams involved. And so you want to make sure that you have an understanding of what each team's responsibilities are, and how those come into play when there are any sort of emergency issues. So it's a, it's a process piece, but it's also a an understanding that you have to understand what exactly you're building and how you're supporting it. Because if you don't do that well, you could end up with, you know, a pile of spaghetti, like we like to call them in software engineering spaghetti code, right? Where, you know, nobody knows how any of this works. It just worked until it didn't. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, good luck rolling it back. <laughs> exactly. Cool. Well, Mike, uh, are you a social person? Is there places that you would suggest folks follow you or, you know, a blog that you want to push or, or anything else that you want to share with the audience? So I, I am semi-social. Um, so I am, I am on LinkedIn as ITS Code. I'm on Twitter as ITS Code. I will have a blog coming under ITS Code, not launched yet, but hopefully later this year. Um, so if you just Google ITS Code, I should come up somewhere somehow on social. <laughs> yeah, that's that's easy to remember. ITS yeah. Code. <laughs> of course, we'll have links in the show notes for all of that. Well, Mike Fraser, thank you so much for being a guest again on Day Two Cloud. And hey, listeners out there, virtual high fives for you for tuning in to this excellent show. If you have suggestions for future shows, something you'd like to hear about, a topic that we haven't covered in the appropriate amount of depth, let us know. You can hit us up on Twitter at Day2CloudShow. We both monitor that handle. Or, you know, if you're not a Twitter person, you can find me on my website, nedinthecloud.com and fill out the form that I have there. If you like engineering-oriented shows like this one, visit packetpushers.net slash subscribe. All of our podcasts, newsletters, and websites are there. It's all nerdy content designed for your professional career development. Till next time, just remember, cloud is what happens while IT is making other plans. Mm-hmm.